Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third now edition of our, of our Conscious Capitalism Virtual Summit. Really, really excited uh, to have you all join us today and, and really excited for the panel and for the discussion. Um, I'm going to do a quick intro of, of Conscious Capitalism and what we're all about because I know we get a few new folks uh, every time on, on these calls. Uh, so those of you that have been around a while, bear with me. Uh, but, but I do want to make as much time as possible for our, our illustrious panel that we have assembled here today. Uh, and, and please, as always, feel free to jot some ideas, questions, comments in the, in the, in the Q&A, and uh, I will try to work those into the conversation. And we also have some, some time at the end where we, can, where we can discuss that as well. So, uh, you know, today we're, we're really dealing with, uh, with racism as a public health crisis was, a, was a, uh, a declaration made by the Rochester Black Agenda Group. And we as conscious capitalists, uh, you know, I firmly believe need to make sure that that is a business imperative. We need to make sure that this is something that, that we are not only uh, participating in, but, but, but leading and, and, and contributing to and, and figuring out how the, the business sector uh, can, can make a positive impact in this direction. And so I'm really excited to have panelists that have a, a variety of, of interests and, and expertise and backgrounds that can share some of, some of their experience. Hopefully everyone, uh, you know, hopefully we don't need too much convincing that, that it should be a business imperative, but uh, we will do a little bit of that, but we'll also get, have, have some time to talk about how to get started, um, how to contribute, and, and what kinds of things are, are already going on in the community that, that maybe we can, uh, we can contribute to. So uh, thank you so much. We, we have Jerome Underwood here from Action for a Better Community joining us. We have Mohammed Ahmed from Engaging Diversity Inclusion, uh, Keisha Carter from Coordinated Care Services, and we have uh, Annalise from Monroe County. And so just very briefly, I uh, just wanted to thank our visionary partners uh, that allow us to, uh, to bring this to you for uh, both, both throughout this, this virtual conference, but also throughout the year, uh, the Accelerate team, Clean Craft and the Bonadio Group, and the sustaining partners, Benefit Link, Home Leasing, Nazareth College, SWBR, Two Point Capital Management, and Grit Health. And then also, um, we have partnered with the, with the upstate New York chapter in the Syracuse, Utica area, and they have some, some sponsors as well. So Loretto, Chabani, Strategic Financial Services, Mohawk Global, CEO, Gilroy, Kernan, and, and Gilroy, really appreciate their support as well. Uh, and, and really is exciting you know, to, to bring in more, more voices uh, and, and more people in the audience because we really are a, a region that, that uh, it can rise together when, when we make sure that this growth is, is inclusive for everyone. Uh, so just a quick note, we do have two more sessions of our virtual conference. As a reminder, we have been meeting every Wednesday at 3 p.m. And so uh, we have next week how to build a more inclusive entrepreneurial ecosystem and then a discussion the following week on corporate cultures that heal. Because as a reminder, this is the healing force of business is, is the theme of our conference. And that's from Raj Sisodia's book. His keynote was, was last Wednesday at 3 so you can, uh, you can check the video or, or the podcast link on that to be able to take a look at that. He has a new book called The Healing Organization, which really fits in well with hopefully all the discussions that we're, that we're going to have today in terms of how uh, business can and maybe even should be, be a healing force for our communities and for the planet. So uh, if, if you have missed some of the past conversations, please feel free to join. Uh, uh, please feel free to, to watch those. And if any of the upcoming ones sound interesting, please feel free to join us for those as well. Uh, as I mentioned, you can check out last week's keynote with Raj, and from the, the week prior, we had a discussion on healing the upstate economy, 
uh, with, with some of our, our local business leaders of, of Chambers of Commerce and, and the Urban League and the Business Council. So uh, check those out if you have not already. Now, without further ado, I would love to invite our panelists into the discussion. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, I, I'd like to kind of start as, as framing this conversation, talking with Jerome a little bit. So Jerome is the CEO of Action for a Better Community, and he's a founding member of the Greater Rochester Black Agenda Group. So Jerome, I'd be really curious to, to hear from you. Uh, what was the, the, the founding of this, of this Black Agenda Group and, and how this, this declaration came about? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, thank you, Andrew, and good afternoon to the viewing public and as well as uh, my fellow uh, panelists. Um, uh, you know, in our green room, we're just speaking briefly about how serious this, this, this issue is um, uh, to so many of us. Uh, the genesis of the Black Agenda Group, uh, as we call ourselves, the BAG, um, goes back to about 2014, actually, when um, there was a very large meeting of Rochester's Child Care Council. Um, back then, I, I was um, Senior Director of Youth Development and Family Services for the Rochester City School District. Um, so anything with families and children was my responsibility, so to speak. And in that meeting, and there were about 80 people in the meeting, but there were only about four people of color. Um, and three of those four happened to be um, two very dear people to me now, uh, Melanie Funches and uh, Jackie Campbell. Um, we didn't know at the time in the back of the room was then Commissioner of Education, or still Commissioner of Education, um, Cynthia Elliott. And what was happening in that meeting, um, very, well-intentioned people were discussing what we collectively were going to do to improve the lives of um, the children in Rochester. And I say very well-intentioned because I, I really do believe that. But essentially what they were saying um, and what they were, the, the conversation was going to be damaging to families. And myself and Melanie and Jackie, we kind of you know, Keisha, you, you, you know, we kind of looked at each other with that nonverbal, like, you're going to say something or I'm going to say something, but somebody's going to say something. And we decided that, no, we, we had to stop the meeting. And we did for about 20 minutes. Um, but what was so, um, what should I say, disturbing uh, to us is that people were just going full speed ahead. And that was not the first time. And we walked out of that meeting saying, never again. And we stood on the sidewalk outside the library for probably another hour and a half. And it had, it had been said many times, um, well, you black people need to get yourself together. You know, and some of that is valid. So we did. And, you know, 11 of us started meeting probably two times a week for about a year. And the first thing we did, we need to get into deep relationship with each other. We needed to get to know each other um, because, again, relationship, um, the preeminence of relationship for people of African descent is number one. That's our axiology. So we spent pretty much a year doing that. And then we spent another four or five months writing the Black Agenda. And we don't claim to have a monopoly on Black thought. However, we're a group of people who 
have a lot of credibility and run some things in Rochester, we feel it was our responsibility. So we wrote this Black Agenda based on three pillars. Uh, we started off with nine and narrowed it down because, you know, again, you can't boil the ocean. And those three pillars that we chose were education, health and wellness with a particular emphasis on mental health and economic development. So, and, and very deliberately after we, we launched the agenda in actually 2016, uh, we kind of went underground um, in Harriet Tubman style because a lot of work needed to be done with us as black people, you know, in, in, in becoming, um, in getting us to be, un to get us to a position of unity now. And I pause on that because unity doesn't certainly mean unified, right? It, you know, because we're not monolithic people, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Fast forward to four months ago uh, in, in March. So here comes the pandemic. And, um, you know, not surprising to uh, any of us, the, the disparate nature and the disparate impact of the pandemic uh, raised its head really, really quickly when we saw black and brown people in particular die across this country and right here in Rochester at a rate three, four times um, that of our Caucasian brothers and sisters, like die. Um, and we know that the, the medical professionals were telling us the people who are most um, likely to, you know, be susceptible are you know people who have pre-existing conditions being you know uh diabetes you know any sort of respiratory um illness uh older people people who live in multi um dwelling uh, um units however despite that knowledge it took seven weeks for testing to be available in the city of rochester via jordan health and trillium health that is example number 842 of what systemic racism does, because you know where the weakest um, uh, and the most vulnerable people are, but yet you being all of us together fail to respond to that until people died. Even to this day, Andrew, you know, in Monroe County, nobody's able to say, give the demographic breakdown racially of the people who are tested. Now, why wouldn't we do that when we know that that information is very important? Just suppose we're right in the middle of the census right now where everybody has to tell, you know, my name is Jerome Underwood, I'm a person of African descent, because that's really important because you allocate resources based on that. However, with this um, very global pandemic, no movement was made on that. And, and, and so we decided, well, we need to do something about that. We need to get really vocal. It's our responsibility as black people in Monroe County to step to that, as we say. Um, so we started doing some research around the country and how we came up with the declaration, it was not an original idea by us. Uh, it was first, um, <clears throat> the declaration was first made in Wisconsin of all places. Uh, and the work came out of the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Uh, and yours truly was the one sort of assigned to do the research. And within two phone calls, I was able to find the people who originated the work. And now we, we have a working relationship. As a matter of fact, this past Monday, I was on a call with them. So that's how we, we, we got there uh, to make the declaration. Um, uh, it's 
you know, there's a, a little bit of bandwagoness um, happening with the declaration because we haven't really put it out there aggressively yet. However, people have found out about it. And, 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 and when I say bandwagon, I don't mean as a fashion thing, but it makes sense uh, because it is a public health crisis and we don't, we don't need, uh, like you said, we don't need to convince anybody uh, and anybody need convincing. I certainly don't have the time to talk to them. Uh, because there's a preponderance of evidence that shows that, um, you know, being black or brown in this country, for sure, takes at least nine years off of your life expectancy. Yeah, the the uh, the disparities are pretty stark. And, and unfortunately, we're at the top of a lot of lists in our community in terms of the concentrations of poverty and some of those disparities by zip code, uh, by skin color, uh, you know, is is part of that, of course, as well. Um, have you seen it? Because you, you put this out, um, interestingly enough, it was uh, less than a week, but, but it was right before uh, the George Floyd was killed. And, and you know, many, many other communities have, have since, as you mentioned, uh, come up with, with some similar declarations. But was there, uh, were there any other communities, because you mentioned Wisconsin and, and maybe some others that, that got started sooner. Has, have there been any any wins? Is it too early to tell? Or what, what are some other communities doing uh, to go from, you know, the declaration to really creating the conversation and, and hopefully the, the impact and results? Sure. Um, Wisconsin certainly uh, is in the lead uh, because they did this in 2018. Um, and as we know, um, racism is a very resilient thing. <laughs> It is, it is constructed, it is protected um, by laws and, and by people um, in power who, whether knowingly or unknowingly, really uphold the tenets of, of racism. And, um, you know, at Action for Better Community, you know, our primary objective, and our only objective, if you will, is to eliminate or reduce poverty. Um, racism, certainly in Monroe and Ontario counties, is one of the primary antecedents to poverty. Ask anybody, you know, um, uh, who's of color, right? and and you mentioned the concentration of, of poverty. So, uh, again, we have a lot of evidence of that. So, with respect to Wisconsin, you know, they were generous enough to basically share their playbook with us in terms of what they have done. And the the first thing is is the awareness, you know, in making people aware that hey, this is declaration. So the declaration, signing on to the declaration is what we call the, the, the transaction. The real work is the transformational work by committing to action as a result in, in, in an attempt to make sure that we counteract um, uh, the truth of the declaration, i.e. all of us as individuals becoming anti-racist people. And if you're in an organization, make sure your organization is trending towards being an anti-racist organization. That is the work. So what we're currently looking to do is to, for people who have um, sort of done the transaction, i.e. I'm endorsing, is checking in with them. So what are you going to do? You know, certainly we have some recommend, recommendations, and, and but it's good to see what people come up with on their own because everybody's at different places. So with respect, going back to Wisconsin, um, they have done phenomenal work because they made this declaration not for their county, not for their city, but for their state of Wisconsin. That's our end goal. Um, we are, I'll give you a little 
bit of inside baseball with, within the next two weeks, expect the, the, the county exec to make the declaration for the county of Monroe. And then we're going on the throughway, you know, because we think, you know, this is, this is, we're in the life-saving business. So um, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, Boston, um, uh, there's a county in Ohio, twice our size, I forget the name of, uh, of, of the county, I'm sorry, but they've also made similar declarations. But Wisconsin is, is, is leading the pack because they're, they're a year and a half, two years into this work. You've actually led me, uh, led me right in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn it over to, to Anna now because uh, you know, thank you for framing that. And, and now as we're looking, you know, Annalis is the, the Monroe County Director of Planning and Development, um, which includes community development, economic development, planning services, and workforce development. Plus she was formerly the Managing Director uh, of Greater Rochester Enterprise, which is the, the economic development organization here in Rochester that's committed to attracting and expanding businesses. And, and so uh, Anna, in, in our conversations, you've always been a wealth of information uh, in terms of the, the regional economy and in our conscious capitalism Rochester chapter, you know, conscious capitalism is predicated on the fact that that businesses that are more purposeful, that balance the needs of all of their stakeholders uh, end up having a, a, a more robust impact on their bottom line. They, they, they grow, they end up attracting and retaining talent because people are excited to work there at these purposeful companies. And along the way, they're doing positive things for, for their communities and for the planet. And, and so we believe that if, if conscious capitalism can be positive inside of an organization for a, you know, attraction, retention of talent for the bottom line, what if we as a region came to be known for a more conscious way of doing business? And we certainly see, uh, you know, many are passionate about sustainability. We certainly see that, that, that racism and, and tackling that in our community and more inclusive prosperity for all is, is something that, that is an important aspect of of the, the growth of our regional economy. So I, I'm curious from your perspective and in your, um, you know, your background, kind of there, there are pockets of growth. There's great stories to share. And your work at GRE, you, you were part of bringing a lot of organizations to town and helping them grow. But, but the prosperity has, has never really been broadly shared in Rochester. And so how do you see that that's impacting you know, both, both segregation and, and racism? How is that impacting our regional economy and, and really not uh, you know, achieving our potential? Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for including me. It's great to hear everyone's insights. I'm honored to be on this panel with um, with my esteemed colleagues. Um, thank you for the kind introduction. So you're you're spot on. Even despite the drastic negative impact of the pandemic on the global economy, Greater Rochester um, is on a growth trajectory right now, and our economy is diverse uh, in terms of its industry sectors and for the most part sustainable in terms of our emphasis on future-focused technologies. We have a smart workforce and our housing market is among the hottest in the nation right now. So that's all good. That being said, we are the fourth most impoverished metropolitan area in the United States. Rochester was among the first cities to implement, implement major um, destructive urban renewal projects and, and a car-heavy highway system that literally paved the way for white flight out of the city. Redlining here was just as prevalent in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even probably more recently as it was in the South. Just like poison is more deadly in concentrated doses, poverty is deadlier when it's concentrated in geographic areas and in neighborhoods. So when you're in Brighton, when you're in the neighborhood of the arts, when you're walking on the canal path or at Highland Park, you'd never really think if you're a white person from out of town that you're sitting in the fourth most poorest metropolitan area in the U.S. 
And that's because our poorest families, our poorest children are disproportionately unfairly stuffed into small pockets of the city where basic quality of life amenities for like grocery stores with fresh produce, urgent care, clean parks and open spaces, good schools, reliable schools are hard to find, frankly. So while we're one of the world's most innovative metro economies and a global leader in optics and electronics and medicine and a world-class higher ed system, cutting edge, R&D happening here in our backyard, Rochester's ability to keep growing and expanding is limited because of the limitations forced upon our poorest neighbors who are, for the very most part, black and brown. And so if it's hard for our growing companies in tech and medicine and manufacturing to find talented workers right now to keep growing, we have no excuse for not descending upon those neighborhoods and those school systems and in crisis to train up our future workforce and make job opportunities freely available. We need to elevate black and brown voices. We have to stop being a country club, white dominated business community. That's just not a future, that's not a recipe for the for future health. And you know, in my job in economic development, when I'm competing with other regions, other states, other cities for projects, they do look at our, our the makeup of our workforce as a negative. It, you can't so if they're coming here and they want to hire software engineers, they don't want to just hire white, um, white men, white male software engineers. They want they, the, the, the most successful companies right now see inclusion, equity, and diversity as a positive for their bottom lines, to your point, Andrew. And when they look at Rochester and they, they see that they can't um, recruit a diverse workforce, they're going to look elsewhere. So we have to roll up our sleeves. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and you know, you, I, I appreciate you kind of bringing some of the historical context into, into play, too. Certainly, um, Rochester has, has its own history, but unfortunately, it's, uh, it's replicated in, in a lot of metros around the country. And, and so I'm curious, from your perspective or, or your research or, or some of your benchmarking that you've done, are there any other communities uh, that have faced kind of similar challenges in terms of segregation from structural racism and and been able to make a meaningful impact towards more equitable growth? Is there anything you've seen or that we can learn from them? Sure, so when you visit a place like Philadelphia or Atlanta, you see a black and brown, you see black and brown people interwoven with white people throughout um, K through 12, at every level of education, every level of the workforce, black CEOs, um, having lunch with white CEOs, you don't see that in Rochester, right? Um, that's not just, it's not necessarily something that they came up with a program and made it happen. It's really, in those cities, there's a lot more collaboration between city and other civic leaders with industry and higher education and K through 12 school systems. They also have more accessible public transportation systems. And in general, they're simply not as segregated as our city is, right? So. Um, and it just naturally becomes, um, it, it's just, it's a, it's a fa it becomes the fabric of those cities' economies. Diversity is visible everywhere, and it's, it's not visible in Rochester. I think we need to push for politics to get out of the way, as tough as that may be, and get aggressive about elevating the voices of black and brown um, residents and neighbors, as well as building bridges to sustainable career paths for those individuals. I think the county should partner with the city to encourage more home ownership at every income level. And historically, 
flap or poor neighborhoods. Um, we need to really get aggressive about this. And um, as much as I hate to talk about silo busting, that's really the bottom line. It's like it, making sure that people are talking to each other and um, getting out of the way. Yeah, that's actually leads right into the, the next kind of question that I had for you just around uh, unfortunately, because of the because of the segregation in our community, um, the, the suburbs sometimes, whether it's uh, turning a turning a blind eye or being willfully blind to some of the challenges in in the city, uh, where I, I truly believe in, and I think we're on the same page here that the the growth of our region, you know, it has to be equitable. It has to include both city and suburbs in the in the in the long run. Um, their their fates are inextricably linked. Uh, and, and so that was one of the things because uh, there, there's this new commission that you can maybe tell us a little bit about around racism and structural equity. Uh, and, and that was actually a partnership of the county with the city. Um, so, so that gave me a little bit of hope to see more of, at least at the government level, uh, a little bit more willingness to, to collaborate and seeing how uh, they, they really do need to work together and bust some silos. So I, I know it's early days on that commission. Um, but hopefully it is starting to create some of those conversations. What are, what are some of the hopes of that commission? What can we, what can we kind of expect? Any, any thoughts? Thank you, Andrew. It's so exciting that County Executive Adam Bello, my boss and Mayor Lovely Warren have, have established the Race Commission, which is taking shape as we speak, like you said. It's also incredibly energizing that Mr. Bello is setting up a Department of Diversity and Inclusion, and he's hiring a Chief Diversity Officer as well as an Equal Employment Officer. There are major steps forward. I think everyone on this call is probably familiar with the fact that for the last 30 plus years, there's really been a brick wall built between county government and city government. There was no collaboration, and it was a real wasted opportunity. So today, you know, beginning this year, it was at square one. So these are launch pads. They're not solutions in and of themselves, of course. Um, two small nearer term solutions that are taking shape that we're building right now in tandem with these two initiatives um, are an adoption of an equal pay policy uh, to apply to any employers that wish to do business with um, the county or take advantage of economic development incentives through my department. So we're essentially going to be asking employers to certify that they are in full compliance um, and that have never had any adverse findings under New York State's very robust 2019 pay equity legislation and any federal legislation. And we're going to be auditing businesses and, and ensuring compliance, asking for them to provide us with um, evidence that they are paying um, people of every race, every gender, every religion, any any ability status. If you have the same job title and um, level of experience to bring to the role, you should be making the same salary. So that's one uh, small thing that we're implementing, and, and it's a mirroring a similar policy that's on the books in Erie County. Erie has done a lot of great, very creative things to this end. Um, in the long term, it would be wonderful to see these efforts, the Race Commission, Diversity Inclusion Office, lead to better K through 12 outcomes in the city school district. Um, rising to push for initiatives like next year's um, the Monroe County Bicentennial, uh, talking about renaming the airport after Frederick Douglass, rallying around public art projects to celebrate our legacy and our heritage and pave, for, pave the way for a more inclusive future, 
Um, I wish we had more black and brown CEOs and executives in our business community. Maybe today's conversation and these programs being developed at the county and the city level can pave the way for that. Because that all starts, as we all know, like in kindergarten classrooms, you have to encourage children to believe that they have uh, prosperous futures. If Rochester is gonna to continue to be a leader in tech innovation and a destination for talent, we have to stop talking the talk and allowing, and then allowing for the white dominated, like I said, country club culture to still drive decisions about our economy. Not fair, it's a recipe for failure, and frankly, it's embarrassing. So today we have a cause to be optimistic, even though we're only just beginning this dialogue, we've got a long way to go, but our local leaders right now, my boss included, are making great choices and getting us on the right path. So I'm, I'm gonna um, roll up my sleeves and, and join the cause. Thanks so much, Anna. Uh, you know, really helpful to, to paint that big picture and, and, and look at our, our economy as a whole and, and really how, how we're, we're all in this together. Um, it, it, we, we need to be. Um, you know, I think, I think that, that phrase gets used a lot, but, but in, in a lot of cases, it has hit people, both, both COVID and, and obviously uh, structural racism has hit people in, in disparate ways. Um, but, but we can and, and, and we should um, see those, those fates and, and that prosperity in, in the long run is, is intertwined because we, we need to, to, to rise together. And so, you know, Jerome mentioned the, the transactional signing, whether individually or, uh, you know, as an organization, we'll make sure that we, we share that, that link so that you can take a look at the declaration itself. Uh, but, but I then, then wanted to turn, uh, Keisha, to you because I know as, as Chief Diversity Officer at, at CCSI, you have been doing this work for a long time, uh, but there's also a lot of other organizations out there who have been uh, either either negligent or they have said that they, they want to increase diversity and haven't made it enough of a priority or certainly not enough of an urgent priority or we wouldn't be where we are today. Um, so as, as, there, as people are moving, whether it's signing that statement, um, you know, or they are posting things on social media in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, what, what do you like to see? What do you look for to move from, from that, that transaction or that statement to more meaningful change? Um, so again, like everyone else, thank you so much, Andrew, for uh, having me. Thank you to uh, everyone who is participating. And of course, uh, it is an honor to be amongst the panelists who are absolutely amazing people in everything that they do. So I appreciate that. Um, but I think in order to move from um, that kind of like uh, Anna talked about, you know, moving from talking the talk to really walking the walk, we have to do something different. And part of that is understanding first that there's no um, there's no particular degrees of racism. Um, it's either racist or it's not. It's, you know, it's either racist or it is anti-racist. So I take that back. It's not racist or not. It's, it's racist or it is anti-racist. And there's no degrees. It's not like a burn. It's not. So there's no degrees. You don't get, you know, second degree racism to 30% of your life. It is racist or it is anti-racist. And so there is a, there needs to be some type of action that is actually done to show that you are uh, in that anti-racist space. Um, and so it is really doing the, doing the work of an anti-racist, being educated, understanding what that means. Um, you know, so 
picking up a book, reading something, watching a video, understanding, taking that in, and having real conversation with the folks around you about the things that you plan to do and how that can be helpful. And so it's not just making that statement about being, you know, I'm not racist, it is, or for an organization to say that they're not racist, it is actually um, moving to do something. So, um, and, and I think it's those statements, there have been statements made by organizations recently in, in light of what has been um, highlighted through social media and um, the med and, uh, other forms of media, because it's not new. These are things that have been happening for hundreds of years in this country. They're just being, we can see them um, much quicker now. And so those statements that have been made by different organizations, um, you know, they don't mean a lot unless there is something behind that. And so, um, so what, is, what is that statement then going to turn into, uh, how is it going to be realized? What's, what's the reality behind that? What is the plan to make that reality impactful for the uh, employees in that organization and for the customers or clients that are served by that organization as well? So there needs to be some actionable uh, plan that is shared with so that folks know what's really happening. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the plan needs to be in place. And I think a lot of a lot of people are struggling with uh, how how to get started when they're when they're so far away from from where they where they need to be. And, and, and again, as you're mentioning, these things have been been happening for a long time. They've been around for a long time. Certainly, people of color have known that they're around for a long time. Many, uh, many white people are, are just waking up to that fact. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective, is is there a are there kind of some first steps that that organization should take in terms of some of the first kind of bigger things that they that they that they could commit to uh, you know on on this journey as they're as they're really if they are committed to to really making positive change? Yeah, I think um, first you know knowing what equity looks like for their employees and you know the folks that are served by that particular organization, you know, understanding what equity looks like, and so instead of telling folks, you know, here's what we're going to give you, really reaching out to them and understanding what is it that you want, what is it that you need in order to feel like you are included in the decision-making processes moving forward. Um, taking stock of um, what they look like at all levels of the organization. Um, I say it very often when I speak on panels or when I speak to individuals, really, um, you know, a lot of organizations um, talk about how diverse they are in many aspects of diversity and they look at the organization as a whole and um, and they what they tend to forget is that um, that totality is really driven by much of the frontline employees which are usually the largest base of the um, employee in uh, of the employee and so um, that diversity is driven by those frontline usually lower paid employees. And then all of that diversity, as you, if you think about it in a pyramid, and that's why they're the foundation and they're the largest uh, group in an organization. And then as you go up that pyramid, that diversity starts to thin out quite a bit. And so um, organizations really need to look at all areas, all levels of employment within their organization and determine um, where they're missing some things. Are, do we have people that you know, are not performing optimally in that role in an inclusive and equitable manner where we can take that person out of that role and, re and put in 
um, more racial diversity to be able to have those other perspectives and drive the mission of the business in the way that we say we want to do that, especially now as organizations are making those statements around uh, their commitment to uh, anti-racism, equity, and inclusion. If, you know, if they have um, if there are organizations that have a largely uh, white executive um, level and they're not looking to do anything different, those decisions can't be made from a largely white executive level because they don't understand the impacts of racism the way that someone who has felt those impacts of racism do and are able to lend that perspective to all the decisions and the strategy that um, that, that organization um, is moving forward. And so, um, and then another thing, you know, a quick kind of quick hit, since we're talking about things that organizations can do, those statements that are made by organizations, really looking at, you know, what's that statement? Are you saying um, something that, are you saying words without really saying anything? I've seen statements from organizations recently in light of uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, so on and so forth, because there's a thousand names that I could say um, that have been, you know, for lives that have been lost in the last few, uh, in the last few months, in the last few years. But um, those statements, are they saying words without really saying anything? Are they really taking that middle of the road stance because they effectively don't want to um, make their uh, stakeholders, make certain stakeholders uh, upset with them for taking a hard line? And if that's the case, then if that organization is really serious, then they need to take that hard line. They need to make that statement very clear and they need to follow that statement with the plan that is shared with the stakeholders and all and, and with that with, within those stakeholders, I mean the employees, the constituents that are served by that organization, um, and share with them what those plans are, act on it, and being open to be challenged by the community and everyone that's impacted by the work that that organization is doing, because that's the only way they're going to show that they're really serious about doing the work of being anti-racist. So important, and and you know one of the things too, I, I know that you and I have talked about in the past. Uh, you know, there, there are so many ways, especially, you know, for, for us white people, uh, things, that, things that are invisible to us in the, in the recruiting process, in just the onboarding process, in the, in the cultural, you know, practices uh, of, of an organization. What are some of the ways, because I know that, I, you know, you in your work as Chief Diversity Officer at CCSI um, and some of your past work as well, you've really gone a lot deeper into you know, trying to root out and trying, as you mentioned, to be anti-racist, uh, you know, actively anti-racist in, in your practices. So can you t tell, tell us a little bit or, or maybe give us a few, a few examples of some of the ways that you know, we may not even notice um, some of our practices might be discriminatory? Because you know, I think you can look at something like a pay gap and, and that makes sense to be able, okay, we need to work on that. But, but there's things in the recruiting process or, or elsewhere where, where we might not even notice um, is creating some of those disparities. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of times it's when, within those code words, this person's not a good fit for the organization, a good fit in terms of what? And so, you know, being very clear, I think uh, anytime if an organization is able to um, put together a very clear structured process for recruiting, interviewing and hiring um, based on what they want their organization to be culturally, then that good fit, then we, you know, we can challenge not a good fit for what, because here's the thing, you know, if I, and, and using that data, if I can, if I, so what I, what I tend to do is, you know, look at the data 
if Andrew, you've had five openings that you've hired for within the last three years, I can go back and look at that data. And now I can come to you and say, Andrew, you've hired, you know, uh, five people in the last three years. And all five of those people have been just like you. They have the same background as you. They look like you. They, and your whole team is made up of little mini Andrews. And so please explain to me where, you know, now I can pull up um, here. You, you say we're not getting qualified candidates. I'm pulling up the candidate pool for, you know, here are the applicants for the folks that applied for the job that you have, the most recent job that you have open. And I'm looking and I'm saying, so please justify to me why you hand, hired another Andrew instead of any one of these people. Um, and so when we have when we have organizations that are willing to invest, you can tell a lot about an organization by where they put their money, what's important to them by what where they put their money. They're putting money into really uh, looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that means being able to have access to the data that is uh, that helps to drive the decisions that are being made. Then um, then we can look at those who's who's applying who's being hired, who's not being hired, who's being promoted. Um, and so a lot of times, like I started with, you know, there's those code words. We don't, we're not getting enough. We're not getting, we don't get the applicants. We're, our applicant pool is, you know, we're not getting uh, diverse applicants. Well, where are you looking? Where, where are you sharing your information? Who are you reaching out to? Let's look at recruiting in a different way than, you know, let's do what, we, what we've been doing for so long who is doing the recruiting. Because if it's that person that, you know, has that degree and is by the book, here's what all of my HR books have taught me about recruiting and that's what I'm going to do, then that's what they're gonna do. But then when you get somebody like myself that comes in or Muhammad that comes in and they're like, well, did you look this place? Did you talk to, did you reach out to Jerome? He is the CEO of ABC. There are so many people that come through those doors every day. Did you reach out to Jerome and see how we how you can uh, share that job posting in a different way? Oh, you didn't do that, right? Because you're going by what your HR book tells you to do. And so we have to look at it in a different way. We have to think about what are the results and sometimes we have to back into it. What are the results that we have to, that we want to get? And now let's backtrack to be able to uh, do some things differently along the way in order to get those results. Who's a part of the interview team? Is it just that hiring manager? Is it, you know, I, I tell people often um, that, you know, we need to have people that have no skin in the game in order to, in, within that uh, interview process, because all they're looking at is who is applied and what that job is. And they're not, they're not um, biased in terms of who's already on the team and what we're looking for to be a good fit. Um, I saw a question pop up and I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, so Fred is asking, um, how do we get recruiting companies to change their sourcing processes so that the candidate pools uh, become more diverse? So if, you, if you're an organization that works with uh, recruiting companies, demand more. The same way I think um, Jerome talked about, you know, as we're, or I think Anna talked about with uh, other organizations, when they're looking at um, funding for positions in Rochester and they're like, you know what, you're doing the same thing. We're not, why, why should we give you money? We're going to go ahead and give this money to Philadelphia to do something different because we're going to get different candidates. If you are paying your money to an organization, you let them know what you want. If you get enough organizations to be a part of that pool that are saying we're using this X recruiting company and all of these organizations that are using this recruiting company are saying, ah, 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 that's not good enough. Throw all those applicants back 
and send me some, some other ones because that's not good enough. And when all of those organizations start to do that, that recruiting company understands, you know what, we got to do something different because the, our customers, you are a customer of theirs. Our customer is demanding this. If we want to make money, we have to give our customer what they want. And so it really, you drive that. You are paying money for a service. Get what you are paying for if that's what you want. Thanks, Keisha. And I want to now uh, invite Mo into the conversation as well. So Mo is the, the CEO and Chief Diversity Officer at Engaging Diversity and Inclusion, where they have, they have training, they have executive search. So, so that could be a part of, a part of that, that answer as well, Fred, that maybe we'll be able to have a chance to talk a little bit about. Um, but Mo, I, you know, I'm curious from, from your perspective, um, you know, leaders that are committed to this journey, um, you know, you and I have talked quite a bit about how it is, it is a personal journey, you know, as much or, or maybe first, even before you can make it an organizational journey um, towards equity. So for those leaders that are maybe listening and are feeling a, a little bit unprepared, what are, what are some of the things maybe on the personal journey that they should be starting or, or conversations maybe to be having inside their organizations? Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thank you everyone for this opportunity. I'm sorry, my voice is hoarse. I haven't been feeling well uh, for the past couple of days. So uh, it's such a pleasure to be on this panel with everyone and just listening and, and, and taking in everything that has been shared thus far uh, brings a couple of things to mind before I talk about uh, how leaders could prepare. Uh, one is this uh, challenge that we are facing with folks doing the transactional work, Jerome, and also um, prancing around and acting like they're moving into uh, uh, action, uh, Keisha and Anna, the, the way in which uh, the, the structures are processed is because there's so much performative diversity happening across the country and the globe. Uh, this idea of performative work is that folks will, will take a stand, but just enough to get them uh, out of the limelight, out of accountability, out of responsibility, out of being held uh, to higher standards by both stakeholders within the organizations and then also uh, the communities and customers within wh whom they serve. So uh, this idea of performative diversity work is really the, the, one of the reasons why uh, this uh, important work of moving organizations into an anti-racist framework and mindset uh, becomes very difficult if the folks making the push are not prepared enough to take on those uh, to lead uh, those organizations into that space. So equally uh, uh, as important as it is for organizations to, to merge into this space, it's the guidance, the coaching, the, the sponsorship that happens with the right leadership, the right team of people, Keisha, Jerome, and for folks who are committed beyond just the lip sync uh, and lip service and are driven to make substantive and sustainable change within those organizations. So I wanted to posit that before we move uh, into it. Yes, this is quite true that um, a lot of times what we witness is this sense of fear, right? Um, around uh, taking on this step and, and being a leader and, and stepping into the space, uh, doing the work. And it comes from really very few places. Uh, one is just not having the consciousness uh, lifting done early enough or, or in the right time to, to meet the demands of the time, right? So a lot of times we have to do self-exploratory journey in order to help leaders uncover ways in which they can move from the sense of fear 
into being bold and courageous to do this work because that's what it takes. Um, and in that process, there's a lot of discomfort. Right? We find a lot of discomfort initially, particularly for white folks, uh, white brothers and sisters. And what it, what it requires is to have someone work and coach and navigate and work with them to, to go through the process of or this developmental process of coming into a space where they know that they're coming with humility, right? For understanding and humility and appreciation for the work that has been carved out by so many people over the, over the course of the history of this country, but most importantly, um, uh, for the organization within which they operate. Uh, once that is done, as you take that first step of self-exploration, which requires some un unlearning, or a lot of unlearning, and also a lot of learning. All right. We try our best to do the unlearning and learning simultaneously so the growth is happening at the intersection of the discomfort. Right? So that's one of the things that folks can think about as uh, we talk about leadership and how to actually go forward doing this work more intentionally. Thanks, Mo. I'm also curious because, you know, this has been, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to undermine um, or, or, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to make, make any light of, of everything that has been going on and, and how long this has been going on. But I, I do think at the same time that the, you know, the past few months have been especially traumatic for, for people of color and, and for, for employees of color, uh, you know, inside of their organizations. And, and I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, uh, for those leaders inside of organizations uh, that, that are trying to be as, as conscious as possible of, of that trauma that, that some of their employees uh, may be going through. Are there any ways to, uh, to, to talk with that employer to create conversations in the, in the organization uh, that, can, that can be, uh, you know, be, be helpful in those, in those difficult, difficult times that we're going through? Absolutely. And, 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 We've wrestled with this for quite some time. Uh, it's, it's because of certain issues that come up uh, during uh, inquiry, right? One, for, for example, this idea of cultural taxation, right? Where folks of color who are in roles, like Keisha, chief diversity officer, I would, everybody wants to talk to you about uh, everything. What, what can I do right now? Well, I've been here for the past four years. Um, it's gl I'm glad that you're now seeing me and you're noticing my work. However, you need to come to, you need to approach it in a certain way. There's a way to broach the subject without really taxing, because there's a price to pay for the amount of work, the overload uh, that it requires to actually educate and teach folks uh, all the time. So the cultural taxation is very important for folks to understand and wrap, wrap their minds around what it truly means. The second is that there's a serious uh, 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 issue around racial battle fatigue with folks that are in spaces that have been battling and working and trying to make these changes for quite some time. There is fatigue around this issue. So uh, if in the times that we're in right now to just uh, um, out of nowhere, approach someone and think that uh, they can tune in very quickly and just have to put everything aside to focus on your needs uh, now, is quite uh, un unfair and it's not equitable in the sense of the work that we do. So uh, my usual uh, advice is that folks need to do some homework first. You need to do some self-education initially. Start with yourself first. 
learn about some of the few things we've talked about. What does cultural humility look like? So when I'm having conversation, I'm not coming with it with insensitive topics and insensitive ways of approaching the topic. What is cultural relevance, right? Or, 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 or responsiveness? What does it look like? Or cultural reflectiveness? How do I meet the moment in terms of situational sensitivity where I can talk to the person by being authentically myself, asking questions from a, pres from a positionality of not knowing and wanting to learn, however, knowing fully well that there are certain consequences of how they, they people would internalize your questions uh, that you ask. So doing your homework, uh, Keisha mentioned, get a book, <laughs> do something. These days, there's so many resources out there. I, I like to say this, technology, uh, with all its ebbs and flows, uh, and, and good and bad has um, become a catalyst to making this work more visible and the importance of what is happening um, readily available for everybody to process. I say this, this I mean it this way. If you heard about Ahmad uh, uh, Arbery being murdered 20 years ago, it's probably through a news uh, channel. You're probably gonna get it from the news you're not gonna hear it from a person, you're not gonna get it from a, 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 um, a source that is more authentic and generic, right? You're gonna hear it from a synthesized version of the story. What we're seeing today is that these things are readily in front of us and it's, it's, it's pushing us and confronting, uh, uh, pushing us to confront the issues head on um, and being able to wrestle with it as we see these images um, and videos that are percolating across the country and globe um, and in ways that has never happened like this before. There are movements in the past and things that have happened in the past, but this today is in every household, right? It's in every household. And so it's so vivid that this idea of the world being flat by Friedman talking about the world being flat is truly exacerbated by technology. And this is, I, I hear a lot of things, I'm reading a lot, we're seeing a lot about this being a movement that is not here to go. The time is now, but Carter writes about this, that the urgency, when you want to change things, right, you want to change something, urgency is usually downplayed by a factor of 10, and in our case, in this case of racism, by a factor of 25, 30x. There's no, there's no sense of urgency in the past around these issues, and now there's a sense of urgency and the source of opportunity to actually learn, unlearn, and do this work more meaningfully. So that's what I could say to, to, to that. Thank you so much, Mo. And, and actually, I wanted to, to go back to Jerome uh, just to hear a little bit because it is really about that sense of urgency. And not only you know, because it, it truly is racism, a public health crisis, uh, but also needs to be a business imperative and needs to be something that we do prioritize. Because one of the ways that you know, we, we haven't you know, been all in this together, as, as, they've, as they've been saying, uh, is that not only as, as the, the Black Agenda Group's declaration talks about the, the health disparities that already existed, uh, but also in terms of with COVID, uh, you know, the, the ways that essential workers, you know, in, in the ways that the different risks that people are, are under uh, based, on, based on both pre-existing health conditions, but then also their job functionalities, uh, has, made it, has made it really difficult and in disparate in terms of really exacerbating inequalities that, inequalities that, that already existed. So Jerome, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, 
Um, what are what are some of the ways you know when we talk about some of those big structures and some of those you know some of those ways where you know who's an essential worker so to speak and 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 how do we keep everyone safe uh, in in this economy moving forward? Um, you know if Hopefully there's, there's not a second wave, but who knows what, what's, what's yet to come. Um, what are some of the things in the short term and, and then maybe in the, in the longer term as we're building back better that you'd like to see? I'm gonna answer that question uh, a couple ways. Um, stories really help, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm African man and you know, that, that whole, symbolic imagery and rhythm really matters. And, and, and Keisha said something that I wanna um, just highlight again and using a couple of different words. People bring themselves to work, right? People bring themselves to work. Leadership really, really matters. And when you have a leader, back to Anna, when you have a leader that's taking a stance on a particular thing. And if that leader is strong enough, right? The people that he or she, you know, has been entrusted to lead have no choice but to follow. Because as Anna mentioned, for the past 30 years, there have been like zero cooperation between the County of Monroe. And now there is extensive cooperation. But here's how sticky racism is and the systemic and institutional nature of it. I'll give a personal story. I've been married almost 31 years. When my wife and I were gonna have our very first child, we, you know, of course our families are big, but we wanna do it ourselves. So we got books to read and, you know, and we got this book on pregnancy and first page, it was talking about the changes that the woman is gonna go through and it said, and your breasts are gonna turn pink. Andrew, I threw that book so far, I don't think it's landed yet, All right? And that's 31 years ago. Whose breasts are gonna turn pink? My wife is from Jamaica and one of the, you understand? But who's that book written for? One story. Second story, I, I pull out of um, the, uh, the cartoons. Everybody knows Garfield, the, the cartoon character Garfield. It's Thanksgiving. Garfield is sitting down ready to have Thanksgiving dinner. He has a big feast in front of him and he sits down and as he looks forward, there's, there's a window and through that window in the other yard is a dog and the dog is all forlorn and the dog has a, a, a pen and there's nothing, no food in his dog pen. So being the humanitarian that Garfield is, he gets up and he goes and closes the drape. Follow me? In other words, what he can't see doesn't matter. Back to the issue of leadership. People bring themselves to work and what they think and how they think about humanity is really, really important. I've been a CEO for about two and a half years now, and I learned the difference between leadership and management. Very subtle difference, but very profound difference. Leadership is about the people. Management is about the work. I'm entrusted to, to lead 400 people. They know what to do. 
But my major responsibility is to make sure that those people are whole and have the tools that they need to do the work. And in that, I have to check into their soul. How are you doing? How is your family? How do you feel about things? So in any leader of any organization, for profit, government, whatever, he or she has the responsibility for those people and the people that they serve. So if your worldview and your ideology is such that different, if it's not an equitable one, right? There's going, it's going to have a problem. There's going to be problems because you're going to display that through and throughout the agency that you run, the organization that you run, for profit, not for profit, government, whatever. Because people are going to follow the tone of that leader. Because if nobody is following him or her, then he or she is just out for a stroll. So you need you need strong leaders, and especially right now, as Mo was talking about, right? This is a time of opportunity because there's no fence anymore. I just want to know the people who are not going to draw the curtain. Mm. But I also want to know the people who are going to draw the curtain. Why? So I can avoid them. Because the urgency of now, because literally, you know, th there's a, a video I recorded, it's on our website. There's two pandemics. There's the, pa the COVID-19 pandemic and there's the very resilient pandemic of systemic structural and individual racism. And, you know, as Mo mentioned, Keisha mentioned, Anna mentioned as well, it requires an investment of time by all of us. You know, it takes 10,000 hours to get good at anything, anything, anything. So how much time people commit to that? Because if you really, really believe first, I think justice first, because it's when you believe it, when just equity follows justice, because if you don't, recognized by humanity and don't think that it is just to do things that are going to end up being equitable then one's actions the action that we all have to take is going to line up to what we think and Anna said some real powerful things in terms of change because one thing I know and I want to speak to white people directly now there's a price to pay because if and when you start acting in, in an equitable fashion, you may get written out of a will. You may not get a contribution to your not-for-profit. You, you may get disowned. But I say to you, that price is a very small price based on what people of color have been, been experiencing in this country. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I'll, I'll close for now, that all of us, all of us, uh, have been impacted, but what, what I call America's two original birth defects. One, being the genocide of Native people, and two, the racism that's been inflicted on primarily people of African descent and those who followed our Latino brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters who followed, and everybody else. And this country has yet to effectively deal with those two original birth defects. But what we're talking about now, we're gonna put it right in people's face and say, well, choose. You either deal with it or not, because there's consequence. And the hardest thing is that what we're talking about is love. And as we say, love is the prescription. And when the prescription doesn't work, increase the dosage. Beautiful. Ah, 
I love that. And, and yeah, you know, you mentioned a few things. One, one being some of that in, invisibility. I, I actually saw something shared on social media. Uh, there was a, a black medical student who was uh, taking pictures of different skin conditions on black skin, because when you go search for something of, you know, do I have whatever this illness is, it's all pictures of white skin. And so, you know, some, some of those things that gosh, in 2020, we're still, we're still dealing with. And then, and then the other thing too, I think if, if nothing else, uh, because I, I've certainly been guilty of it in the past too, and something I'm, I'm trying to be more conscious of now is whether it's when you're in a white space or, or you know, you're, you're at a family, family get together or something, you know, making those, making, making a little bit of, a little bit of discomfort um, and recognizing how small that price to pay is. Um, I, I hope we can all, uh, you know, especially the, the white folks that are either, either on here live or, or listening, uh, you know, can, can recognize, you know, it's the, for the sake of, of the harmony of the, of the family dinner or the, or the family party or something, um, it, it just, it, it's not, it's not acceptable. Um, it never was, uh, but, but, but now more than ever, we need to, uh, we need to be committed to a little bit of that discomfort, uh, even if it means, as Jerome said, get, getting written out of a will. <laughs> Um, one of the things too that, uh, that, that Kevin is asking, uh, because, because Mo was mentioning some of the positives of, of technology, uh, you know, the, the transparency that it creates, uh, the way that we can see, uh, I think it was Will Smith that said that none, none of this stuff is new. It's just now getting recorded. Um, but at the same time, there's some, there's some downsides to, to technology. And, and Kevin asked about this in terms of, uh, you know, as technology is, is designed with unconscious biases in mind and, you know, you're, you're mining big data that is, that is a bunch of data of, of biased individuals, um, you know, how do those things, how do we root those out in, in the recruiting process to ensure diversity? And, and Keisha, I think you said that you wanted to take that one. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so one of the things, if, if an organization, and, and I, this is one of the things I talked about earlier is uh, when, if an organization is um, really serious about something, that's where they put their, mo their money. And, um, and I, I understand that there is uh, artificial intelligence available with, uh, for recruiting, and, but that is extremely expensive. So I, I do understand that. And so I, I will say that is one, I, I will give you a footnote on that one and say, if your organization does not have AI, that is okay because it is very expensive. I'm working on it for my organization and I can't get it yet because it's so expensive. But there are some things that you can do to circumvent that with um, understanding the nature of human uh, implicit biases and overt biases. Um, and so one is, you know, that education on what are implicit biases, what and having uh, having folks go through and understanding what their own biases are. Um, you know, there's free things like the Harvard um, implicit bias test that folks can go through and do and understand that even though they may not consciously feel a certain way, some of those biases come out when they do those. Um, I understood even for myself, having, do, having been doing this work for the last 11 years, um, I had some serious biases. I had to understand where they came from around traditional male and female roles once I did the Harvard uh, implicit bias test. Um, and so that was, and that's not how I act in my uh, normal everyday life, but that is an implicit bias that I have that I had to understand where did that come from. And so um, in order to be able to mitigate that bias when it comes up in the work that I'm doing and when I'm in just my relationships with other people. Um, and so that's something that can be done. Um, the other part is um, having 
multiple steps in um, reviewing the resumes. And so being able to redact some information from applications and resumes before they are reviewed by the folks that are going to be um, doing the hiring. So you can, you can um, simulate some of that AI by having real people try and redact uh, the information that is not necessary to have in order to fill that position. If, you know, if it's a position where someone has to have a certain certification, then that needs to be left in there. But their name does, is not important because we know, as research indicates, black sounding names get hired at a much lower rate than folks with white sounding names. And so, um, so being Lakeisha, my, you know, my resume is not going to get looked at, looked at in the way that Anna's will. And so, you know, even though we could have, you know, we could be going for the same position, having um, the same background, having the same experience, and having, you know, the same education, level of education, it just, it, that's what research indicates based on those biases. Um, one of the other things is, uh, one of the things I'm extremely proud of doing at CCSI is um, kind of my, my, uh, my flag in the moon was uh, to develop um, educational equivalencies. So understanding the, the impacts of uh, systemic racism on education for people of color. And so uh, having uh, a, an educational equivalency chart helps to one, when folks are um, applying. So the educational equivalency chart, let me back up, is um, where you, know, you have those uh, job postings that say, you know, bachelor's degree preferred. And then in all of our job postings, it has a hyperlink and you can click on that hyperlink and it will show you, uh, here's the number of years of experience you can have in lieu of that bachelor's degree to still be considered in the same way that someone with the bachelor's degree would be considered. And so um, that opens up because uh, it breaks down some of those barriers of systemic racism that have been, uh, evident for uh, in, in the area of education. So that helps us to get more applicants uh, there as well. And then it helps our, um, our hiring managers to be able to look at folks that they may not have looked at before, because now they're getting folks to apply that would have felt like, I don't have a shot because I don't have this degree, but we're giving them those, those credits for the, um, the experience that they have as well. So there are some things that you can do to um, circumvent the, those biases that come up um, and so redacting that information that's not necessary to the applicant, creating those equivalencies, um, and then being able to help people understand their own biases and where they come from so that then they're aware of them when they are in that, uh, in that interviewing or screening kind of mode. Megan, thank you so much, Keisha, for the clarification on that and, and the, the showing the tangible example of how um, uh, using even physical bodies to mitigate uh, AI could actually uh, be used when there is no resources allocated to, to, to acquire such a technology. One of the things that Keisha was mentioning that I wanted to add to was this idea of uh, educating or training that search committee or the hiring managers within your organization, right? Serve, serves to, to, to really help the people making a decision to bring applicants into the organization um, uh, to be more aware of their own uh, limitations and blind spots during that process. But more importantly is the policies that guide the recruitment process, right? The policies that guide the recruitment process are 
uh, certainly the most important thing because that's what holds them accountable if they don't make the decision. You heard Keisha saying going back to look at um, uh, your history and the reports and, and what we could bring back from three years ago, how you hired. Those are guided by policies and practices that, that the policies inform your practice. So look into the policies, then working to change those policies so they reflect in the way things are practiced is equally important. Uh, the other thing that I would like to say is, as you navigate uh, with your organization in terms of technology particularly, uh, which is something we do, if you don't have the technology, we try our best to find designated people on your team, on your recruiting teams, right? That will be uh, uh, tasked to really help uh, work with an aid, uh, like a search firm like us to make sure that you put these policies in place and then apps make sure, make sure that it's everybody's responsibility afterwards. It's not going to be one person recruiting who's the diversity recruiter and that's it. This has to be interwoven into everything you do. The, also the issue of entry level work. When we talk about how the data is concentrated around folks who are on the bottom of the pyramid, as we, Keisha mentioned, and as you navigate towards the ladder uh, higher, uh, you realize that there's a lot of challenges, hence why we focus on executive search, because we believe that when the rubber meets the road, right, folks will point to that data and say, look how many people we have in, the, in our organization that are diverse. So we find this particularly in our work in higher education. Uh, when we did our research, we find that a lot of people uh, or institutions and organizations will, will tout the diversity numbers. But when you look through, when you take a fine comb uh, through it, you realize that the, after you sift it to a certain point, you realize everybody's at the bottom and the rocks that are left in the, in the sift, very few, if not limited, uh, if not non-existent uh, to some extent. There are whole divisions that are run in institutions that only have two people tasked with diversity work or people of color or black, particularly a black uh, a representation in these organizations. And so it's important that as we do these, we think about policy because those policies inform the way in which people practice what they do. Um, the other thing I wanted to add with leadership is, uh, <laughs> my, uh, Jerome, as you were speaking, this, this things kept coming to my mind. Uh, you know, there's a saying that says that uh, beliefs rather than reason are the basic fundamental faculty of man. When we do this work, we have to understand folks are coming with a lot of belief systems. They have a lot of ingrained beliefs that is really hindering the ability to see those facts, those data, the presentation, the, the, the information that we're sharing here. And those beliefs, when we do this work, have to be considered in order for us to be able to coach and able to help folks get out of that space and see the data and the information, all the work they, they, you're, what you're doing, uh, 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 Jerome, to get all this data and reach out and get all this information. Uh, research says that a lot of times the, way, the reason why we struggle to make those changes is because people are using their beliefs to make the judgment, not the data. So we have to try to marry the two. Uh, Malcolm, uh, Socrates used to say that, uh, uh, um, <laughs> an unexamined life is not worth living. And then our brother Malcolm uh, changed it a little bit and said, an examined life is painful. So if you don't examine, it's, on, it's not worth living. And then if you examine it, it's still painful. So we're caught at, at, at the intersection of those two. 
And it's very important for us to get to understand before you do this, before you go into the implicit bias training, you do all of this work. That's why it's so important to start getting folks. Reach out to Keisha, reach out to Jerome, reach out to Anna, reach out to people who are doing the work to see how you can do it well so you don't step into those blind spots because there's too many of them out there because this is the system. Last thing I want to say, this, the systems are not, it's not like the systems are not functioning um, are, not, are broken, as folks always say. The system is functioning exactly the way it was intended to function. Right? These systems are functioning exactly the way they were built to function. So it would take a lot of work to, to break those chains and, and undo some of the things that have uh, you know, hindered our ability to actually move our society, our businesses, and our organizations uh, into this space. One example, look at what Nike did with Colin Kaepernick. The painful reality of that ad they put out, their, plummet, their, their stocks plummeted the first week of that ad with hashtag, hashtag boycott Nike. Within one week, everything changed. The online sales went crazy and they were able to capitalize on the losses they gained and then some. So in my view, the risk involved, as Jerome said, right, pales in comparison with the pain and struggles of people, of black uh, people in this country, but particularly people of color, but particularly black people in this country. So it's important to understand there will be risks and there will be some, some, some challenges, but the upside of it, when you are believed and trusted by people, that if your organization actually intends to do this more meaningfully, then the upside of it could be actually something more beneficial and bigger than that. Thanks so much, Mel. You know, I think that there, there really is um, so much, so much that needs to be examined that both in our organizations and, and personally, and so much that needs to be unlearned, quite frankly. Uh, and so, you know, some of the things Keisha was mentioning in terms of, um, you know, what, what kinds of biases that we're having just based on cultural, um, you know, the cultural fit, uh, rather than, than trying to consider what I like to, what I've seen recently called instead is the cultural contribution. And, you know, if you bring diversity inside of your organization, it, it's, it's, you want to create an inclusive environment where you get the benefits of that diversity, where you're getting the, where, where they feel like included and they feel like their, their voices are heard and, and their perspectives are heard. Cause that's really where, where the magic happens in terms of really, um, you know, not only the inclusive prosperity, but, but also the, the growth for, for your organization, the growth for our region. And so, uh, you know, I, I can't believe how quickly the, the, the time flew by. Luckily, we do have two more sessions uh, coming up the next couple of Wednesdays, both on building more inclusive entrepreneurial community and then on building corporate cultures that heal. I just wanted to give each one of the panelists just a one minute or two last word, because one of the things that I sometimes uh, struggle with is some, there's so many initiatives out there uh, you know, Reggie is out there, Racial Equity and Justice Initiative. I know that there's plenty of other uh, organizations that, that are trying to do some work on these. And sometimes I see that there's a lot of nonprofits that end up end up signing up and, and, and signing on. And I think that that's so important, especially in our community where we have a lot of nonprofits. And one of the things in conscious capitalism that we're trying to do is say, you know, the, the for-profit companies, uh, they need to be for purpose. They need to be a part of this change as well. And so I just love to maybe, we'll start with you, Jerome, just one, one final word from, from everybody in just a minute or two of what would you say to the for-profit, the business leaders on why they need to make racism, you know, a business imperative and being anti-racist, a business imperative for their organization. 
what what I would say is um, shotgun weddings don't work. You can't force people into equity work because they'll resent it. You know, they'll think, you know, they're making me do this. People have to come to this work, you know, on their own volition because everybody is on a, a, a different spectrum of their knowledge with respect to race and racism. Some people just don't know. I mean, you know, and I think that's the best answer for them to say they don't know. But if you don't know, you know, just like if you need help with sales, if you need help with technology, if you need help with you name it, you can purchase it. You know, Keisha said it, and I'll say it a different way. A budget is a statement of values. A budget is a statement of values. So if you think that this is something, if you don't draw the curtain and you think that this is an issue for me, right, then you need to make sure you invest in it, and that's going to help. But we can't force people into this because they'll resent it. Thanks, Jerome. How about you, Anna? What, what would you say to, to organizations uh, about why this needs to be a, a priority for them? I would start by saying that if you want to survive and thrive, you have to, you can't, I mean, like you look at paychecks and the, it's all the way, it's in the suburbs, there's primary, it's primarily white workforce, sort of, it, it looks old hat. The future is the future is black and brown and you know women and people of color being elevated to positions of leadership and that's where millennials and gen z um the the consumer the largest segment of the consumer population is investing is spending money on um businesses and brands to to mo's point like with nike businesses and brands that are taking a stand so take a stand if you want to survive and secondly i would say um in terms of job descriptions and educational requirements, we have so many um, people in our community that are passionate and talented. Maybe they don't have a four-year degree. Maybe they just have a two-year degree. Um, they they have a certain set of skills, but not necessarily the formal education. I think we need to start getting a little bit more progressive around where we source our talent and what burdens we're putting on them in terms of certification and training. I think businesses need to train the the people in whom they see potential love it what about you keisha final word yeah um so as anna you just mentioned paychecks i actually worked at paychecks for eight months shortest amount of time i've ever worked in any organization um i'm not even kidding i left this was actually i left to come to work at ccsi and this was the first time in my life i was ever going to leave a job without having another job ready because they were in the business of like literally came home, talked to my husband, pulled out all of our finances. I was like, I can't go back there. They were in the business and this is not a bash paychecks, but they are, it's a very traditional organization that wanted to check a box and they wanted me to do diversity work. And like Jerome said, you can't force. And it was, it was more of, you know, oh, this is kind of what we should be doing. So let's get somebody to do this work. And so I think individuals need to understand who they are, what they stand for, and um and what they want to do moving forward if that wasn't truly who they are they should not have done that and so you know that's in that that's okay because you know be who you are just like nike they took that risk and they knew they were solid they knew who they were and what they stood for and they made that statement um i think 
the impact is different. If an organization is clear about who they are, it's going to make people uncomfortable. Some people are going to be slightly uncomfortable. Some people are going to be uncomfortable to the point where they're like, you know what, this is not the place for me. And that's okay. Go find the place that is not doing this work and you work there because we're doing this work here and we're, and we're doing it openly and we're doing it loud and we're doing it where in, in a way that makes an impact on everyone who works in this organization and everyone who is impacted by this organization and we're not apologetic for that at all. And so I think if that, you know, it makes sense. And I think Andrew, you started out asking why, because it's about people's lives. This is about my life. This is about my son's life. This is about my daughter's life. This is about being able to do something now so that my daughter and my son don't have to do it in the future. We've done, I was gonna say a bad word. We've done this stuff for long enough. We have done that. I got really passionate for a second. We have done this, done it this way for long enough. Let's do it in a way where now the people coming up after us don't have to keep doing this. It's about our lives, that's why. And if you care about people, then you care about people like me, people who look like me. And let's, let's make sure that people who look like me can have the same benefits as people who look like you. Thank you for that. Yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, as you're mentioning, if, if, if it does, some have mentioned, you know, how, how do we, more and more people are trying to be conscious consumers. You know, people want to align the, the ways that they're spending or the ways that they're investing with their values. And, and as you're mentioning as well, if, if this causes you to, to lose some employees, um, you know, because you're, you're, doing it, you're doing this so loudly, um, there is such thing as positive turnover if, uh, if, if somebody's not, not willing to get on board. You're, you got the last word, Mo. I, I don't know how to follow up with all of this. It seems like everything has been encapsulated. I just want to say that the intentional neglect is no longer an excuse. Um, the idea of, of, of ignoring this work uh, in organizations and seeing the value that uh, black and brown bodies bring to organizations uh, is no longer an excuse. We've seen uh, a, a number of initiatives that have come out uh, in the past couple of uh, months um, with pledges and commitments to diversity and so on and so forth, some of which we know are lip service to just circumvent some of the pressure. Others we are watching and observing very closely to make sure that it's consistent with what the, the organizational social responsibility is as we talk about. This is about your ethos. I, as an organization going forward. What do you stand for? What are you committed to do? And how are you gonna demonstrate what you're doing and what you've done? In doing that, let's make sure that we're connecting our hearts and our minds because this is about connecting the two. This is heart work and it's not about just a, a personal positionality irrespective of your political leaning or not or your social status or not, and so on and so forth. This is about hard work. This is about reconciling a, a bad history, right? A, a painful history with the future, potential of the future, right? How do we meet the moment's challenge right now to deal with these things that have hindered people, so many people's potential in the history of this country, Right. The potential that we're losing in terms of human capital when we don't do diversity work in organizations is tremendous. And we can sit here and talk about all the benefits and the things we're missing out. But I think organizations need to start checking the pulse and checking their 
their states, right? What's their ethos and how they will go about doing this work? Thanks so much, Mel. And you know, as, as has been said, hard work is hard work uh, and, and there's a lot to be done. Uh, we will make sure to share with everyone the Black Agenda Group statement. Uh, I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to share it. I encourage you to sign it. Uh, but but as, a, as a reminder, that is, that is only step one. Uh, so please do share this, uh, share this recording with, with anyone that, that you think might be, might be interested. Please uh, reach out to our panelists and, and, and find some other resources to, to get started on your journey. Uh, this is not only a public health crisis, but a business imperative. Uh, you need to be anti-racist in your organization. And, uh, and, and we in Rochester can really set ourselves apart if, if we can, can lead in this. Uh, we, have a, we have a long history of, of agitation, uh, as, as Frederick Douglass said, and, and we can keep this going uh, and, and we can start to make some positive change. So thank you so much to each one of the panelists uh, for, your, for your time today, but also for the work that you're doing each and every day. We are all deeply grateful and, uh, and, and please keep this conversation going to all of our attendees. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today and hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.